Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, April 20th. In today's news, President Trump says the federal government will do more to make swabs available for coronavirus testing. These anti-quarantine protests are not as organic as they seem, and doctors are getting nervous about the disappearance from emergency rooms of patients with chest pains. But first, the big idea. As more than half the people on the planet hunker down under some form of enforced confinement, stirrings of political and social unrest are pointing to a new, potentially turbulent phase in the global effort to stem the coronavirus pandemic. Already, Protests spurred by the collapse of economic activity have erupted in scattered locations around the world. Tens of thousands of migrant laborers stranded without work or away home staged demonstrations last week in the Indian city of Mumbai, crowding together in defiance of social distancing rules. In locked down Lebanon, which was already confronting financial collapse before the coronavirus paralyzed its economy, Angry people have swarmed the streets in Beirut and the northern city of Tripoli on at least three occasions. In Iraq, where a six-month-old protest movement demanding political reforms fizzled in the face of the country's coronavirus curfew, there have been spontaneous but brief outbursts of rage in the city of Nazaria and the impoverished Baghdad neighborhood of Sadr City. In Kenya, More people have died in police crackdowns on citizens defying the coronavirus curfew as of the coronavirus itself. The UN and the IMF are among those warning that the pandemic could soon unleash what UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres calls a significant threat to the maintenance of international peace and security. We're seeing problems even in the developed world. In Italy's relatively impoverished South, The lifting of restrictions earlier this month led to a massive crime wave that has obliged police to guard supermarkets being targeted for robberies by hungry citizens. More than 2 billion people worldwide depend on day work to survive. For many of them, not working often means not eating. A new study by a UN think tank, the World Institute for Development Economics Research, warns that 500,000 people could soon slide into absolute poverty as a result of the pandemic's restrictions, reversing three decades of progress in the war against poverty. This is a lot of human suffering and a lot of people who will soon not be able to eat. Hardship has already triggered several individual acts of desperation. A video circulating on social media in Lebanon shows a man setting fire to his taxi after police ticketed him for breaking the lockdown. Another video shows the flaming figure of a Syrian refugee running in a field after he set himself on fire because he was unable to feed his wife and kids. Another man died after setting himself on fire in Tunisia, which is chilling because that is where the spark was lit for the Arab Spring a decade ago by the self-immolation of a fruit seller who was told by a police officer that he was not allowed to sell on the streets. The next round of unrest in the Arab world could be much uglier and more violent 
than the organized protest movements that have sought political reforms, because these won't be about rights or democracy, somewhat abstract concepts. These could be more dangerous because they'll be driven by starvation. We've been talking a lot about how authoritarians are taking advantage of this crisis to claim more power. Hungary was the first democracy to be killed by the coronavirus, and it sadly will not be the last. But authoritarian leaders who always live under the proverbial sword of Damocles are not resting easy these days. Our intelligence community believes a second or third wave of coronavirus infections could seriously rattle, if not undermine, regimes like the one in China, where the ruling Communist Party has maintained a tight grip on its citizens for the past three decades by delivering soaring prosperity in return for political fealty. But the Chinese authorities announced Friday that their economy shrunk by 7% in the first quarter of the year, creating the country's first recession since capitalist-style reforms unleashed explosive growth in the 1990s. It was a reminder that their social contract could be at risk of falling apart. Dozens of people in the city of Wuhan, at great personal risk to themselves, remember this is where the coronavirus first emerged late last year, took to the streets last week to demand rent forgiveness after lockdown restrictions were lifted. Violent clashes erupted between police and protesters on the border between the provinces of Hubei, which is where Wuhan is, and Zhengqi after lockdown restrictions were lifted in Hubei and police in the neighboring province refused to allow Hubei residents to enter. Concerns about a new wave of infections in the far northeastern province of Heilongjiang have prompted a lockdown at the Russia-China border with checkpoints closed and enhanced restrictions on travel between the two countries. Meanwhile, the regime in Beijing continues to insist that it has only a minimal number of new cases. Color us skeptical. In the spirit of trying to end with a silver lining, this epidemic has severed not just supply chains for stuff we enjoy, like iPhones, it's also cutting off supply chains in China that traffickers rely on for the chemicals that they use to make drugs like methamphetamine and fentanyl that have been such a scourge on our streets. One of the main suppliers of the ingredients used in fentanyl was in Wuhan, and it's been shut down by the epidemic. The Associated Press reports that supplies of fentanyl are falling in places like Houston and Philadelphia, and I have no idea how their reporters figured this out, but apparently the shortages mean that the street price of meth in Los Angeles has doubled in recent weeks to $1,800 per pound. That is good news. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, a chorus of Republican and Democratic governors were unanimous on Sunday in putting the onus on the federal government to help secure vital testing components, including swabs and reagents, the chemical solutions required to run tests for the coronavirus, which have been in dangerously short supply. President Trump has failed to develop a national testing strategy, and he said it's up to the states to figure it out. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, a Republican and the chairman of the National Governors Association, said that's causing huge problems for almost every state. Democratic Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia called Trump's continuing claims that sufficient testing is available across the country for anyone who wants it delusional. 
Ohio's Republican governor, Mike DeWine, said his state's big problem is that the FDA has not prioritized companies that are putting a slightly different formula together for their testing kits. DeWine said that if the FDA would do that, Ohio could probably double and maybe even triple testing overnight. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat, said her state has the capacity to double or triple the number of tests they're doing, but they need federal help to procure the swabs and reagents. Trump, displaying a nasal swab to reporters during his Sunday evening news conference, said the federal government is now going to get involved to procure millions of more swabs. But he also bizarrely claimed that some states have them, but they've lost or simply misplaced what they had. There's no evidence of this. And there's also no official paperwork yet showing that Trump has invoked the Defense Production Act to force production of the swabs needed to fill the shortages. The criticism from governors came on a day that the total number of confirmed U.S. deaths from COVID-19 passed 40,000. 40,000 Americans have now died from the coronavirus. And more than 750,000 confirmed infections have been reported. Meanwhile, dozens of antibody tests now on the market were never vetted by the FDA, raising concerns about their accuracy. The emergence of dozens of tests never reviewed by the FDA, many of which are now being aggressively marketed, is going to end up confusing doctors, hospitals, employers, and most of all, consumers clamoring for the product. Prodded by concerns of experts, the FDA is now stepping up warnings and joining other agencies, including the National Cancer Institute, in trying to determine whether these unvetted tests being sold right now actually work. Meanwhile, the unreviewed tests remain on the market. New York announced last night that it will start random antibody testing this week as the state's death toll rose to 13,869. Governor Andrew Cuomo, a Democrat, announced sweeping plans to test residents for coronavirus antibodies as new deaths and hospitalizations in the Empire State continued a slow downward trajectory over the weekend. The state will conduct random samples of thousands of people to see if they've developed antibodies. It's the most aggressive effort in the nation. And Maryland plans to use robots to expand testing. Scientists tucked away in a University of Maryland research lab in Baltimore got an idea about how to put their high-tech robots to use. The robots can significantly expedite the complex process of analyzing samples taken from Marylanders who get a prescription to be swabbed. The machines can search for the virus's genetic material in many samples at once. Maryland, which is currently testing about 3,000 people a day, jumped at the offer to get these robots involved. The problem is <laughs> they need the basic cotton swabs to take samples from people's noses and throats so that the robots can do their thing. And they don't have them right now. Number two, pro-gun activists are using Facebook to push their anti-quarantine protests. A trio of far-right pro-gun provocateurs is behind some of the largest Facebook groups calling for anti-quarantine protests around the country offering the latest illustration that some of these seemingly organic demonstrations are being engineered by a network of deep-pocketed, well-funded conservative activists. The Facebook group's target Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York, and they appear to be the work of Ben Dorr, the political director of a group called Minnesota Gun Rights, and his siblings, Christopher and Aaron. The groups have about 200,000 Facebook members combined, and they're expanding quickly after Trump endorsed their protests by suggesting citizens should, quote, liberate their states. The Door brothers manage a slew of pro-gun groups across a wide range of states from Iowa to Minnesota to New York, 
and they seek primarily to discredit organizations like the National Rifle Association, which they say is too compromising and moderate. These Facebook groups have become digital hubs for the same sort of misinformation that's spouted in recent days at state capitol buildings. Trump offered support for the protests again during his Sunday evening briefing, even saying that he can understand why some people are comparing the protesters to Rosa Parks. A new NBC Wall Street Journal poll out this morning shows that six in 10 Americans are concerned the country might move too fast to loosen restrictions compared with only three in 10 who say their greater worry is the economic impact of waiting too long. Views of when to reopen are split along partisan lines. 80% of Democrats express concerns about opening too quickly compared with only 40% of Republicans. Number three, five weeks into this nationwide lockdown, Many doctors believe the pandemic has produced a silent sub-epidemic of people who badly need care at hospitals but dare not come in to the emergency room. They include people with inflamed appendixes, infected gallbladders and bowel obstructions, and more ominously, chest pains and early symptoms of strokes. Some doctors worry that illness and mortality from unaddressed health issues may end up rivaling the carnage produced by the virus itself in regions less affected by COVID-19. Physicians on the front lines expect they will soon see an influx of patients who have dangerously delayed seeking needed care as their growing symptoms force them to overcome their fears and finally come into the ER. But what they worry about is that that will happen right as demand is growing from coronavirus patients for already limited hospital resources. Now, much of the reporting about missing patients is anecdotal in medical chat rooms and on doctors' social media accounts. But doctors say it's highly unlikely that there's actually been a decline in most of these underlying conditions, which suggests that at least a few people may be dying at home, although there's no data yet to corroborate that. In the case of severe heart attacks, though, the evidence is mounting that a large percentage of patients with symptoms that typically prompt urgent interventions are simply not showing up. A draft report that we got a hold of that's going to be published later this week in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology looked at nine high-volume cardiac catheterization labs across the country. It found a 40% drop in patients being treated for a life-threatening event known as a STEMI, which is the blockage of one of the major arteries that supplies oxygen-rich blood to our hearts. All my physician friends who are in this fight have been expressing nervousness about the risk of this emerging dynamic, and they want to convey that you should still seek medical attention for chest pains and non-coronavirus symptoms that would normally send you to the ER. Finally, in the positive news to wrap up today's edition, Ben O'Donnell has recovered from his epic battle with the coronavirus. Ben was the first confirmed case in my home state of Minnesota. Doctors in the Twin Cities say he was close to death for several days. They had to put him on a ventilator and a heart-lung pump to keep him alive. What's terrifying is that Ben is a 38-year-old man who does not smoke and does not have pre-existing conditions and was in great physical shape until this virus got inside of him. In fact, Ben has completed several Ironmans. Reflecting on his ordeal, Ben told the Star Tribune that as he struggled to survive, he kept repeating in his head the mantra that has fueled his Ironman finishes. 
Don't stop. Don't quit. Keep moving forward. Don't stop. Don't quit. Keep moving forward. Don't stop. Don't quit. Keep moving forward. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, April 20th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. 